Pentagon redirected money meant for coronavirus relief and spent it on jet engines and body armor. BTS fans are breaking public radio donation records. And we've got Anne Helen Peterson, author of a new book on millennial burnout, to tell us why we're all so tired. The date, September 23rd, 2020. The time, news o'clock. Hey everyone, I'm Hayes Brown. And I'm Casey Rackham. Welcome to BuzzFeed's News O'Clock. Okay, we've got a lot to get through today, so we're just going to jump right into today's top stories. Here's what you need to know. The Trump administration has reportedly spent billions of dollars that Congress budgeted for coronavirus relief efforts on other things, let's say. So the Pentagon was given $1 billion in the CARES Act back in March to, quote, prevent, prepare for, and respond to coronavirus. The thinking was that that money would go towards things like purchasing protective supplies for healthcare workers. Instead, according to the Washington Post, most of it was redirected towards defense contractors to make things like engine parts and body armor and dress uniforms. And Bloomberg News Today says that six of the $16 billion meant for refilling the U.S. strategic national stockpile was reallocated to Operation Warp Speed. That's the name, by the way, of the U.S. government's race for a coronavirus vaccine. And while that's a bit more understandable than jet engine parts, hospitals around the country are still facing shortages of things like N95 face masks and other protective gear as we head into the fall and winter, which... CDC Director Robert Redfield said will be, quote, one of the most difficult times we've experienced in American public health. And in a development that's given me flashbacks to the impeachment drama, the Senate GOP released its report investigating Joe Biden's son for his work in Ukraine. And the result is not much at all. The newly released 87-page report goes through a lot of the claims that Hunter Biden was on the take in Ukraine and that his dad used his power as vice president to shut down an investigation into him. It never actually proves those claims, though, many of which have already been debunked, and it fails to say how anything Hunter did actually affected U.S. government policy, which was the key argument. Much of it we already knew from the impeachment scandal, which, as a reminder, was about Trump pushing Ukraine to hammer away at these claims against Biden. To do so, Trump withheld money that Congress had put aside for Ukraine as a lever to get them to announce a Biden investigation with the goal of kneecapping him in the 2020 election. Today's report was made possible in part by tons of documents about Ukraine that the State Department handed over to Johnson's committee, which they'd weirdly refused to do during the impeachment. Making this an even more transparent play, Johnson outright said in August that he thinks his investigation, quote, would certainly help Donald Trump win re-election and certainly be pretty good, I would say, evidence about not voting for Vice President Biden. Johnson's report also comes on the heels of a new Washington Post story that says Trump just keeps repeating Russian propaganda, making Russian trolls' jobs much easier than four years ago. Meanwhile, four people in Kenosha, Wisconsin, are suing Facebook for its role in enabling violence that broke out there last month, which left two people dead. In the civil suit filed late Tuesday night, the claimants argue that Facebook, quote, empowered right-wing militias to inflict extreme violence and deprive plaintiffs and protesters of their rights you know, by giving them a space to recruit and plan attacks. Last month, an event posted by a militia group in Wisconsin called for armed people to gather in Kenosha in response to Black Lives Matter protests there. Facebook left it up despite being flagged over 400 times. Two people were later killed and another injured in an alleged altercation with 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse, which the suit says occurred in part due to the Facebook event. 
The lawsuit cites a Reconstruction-era law that attempted to hold white supremacists accountable for violent suppression of constitutional rights. As BuzzFeed News reports, the suit also, quote, attempts to pierce the broad protections afforded to platforms like Facebook for user-generated content under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Interestingly enough, this is happening right as the Department of Justice has filed new draft legislation with Congress that also wants to change Section 230. But the Trump administration wants to make it harder for companies like Facebook to take down content posted from other websites on the grounds that it's objectionable. And finally, Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron announced he will be bringing charges against one of the police officers who shot and killed Breonna Taylor in March, but that officer won't be charged with her death. Taylor's case has been at the center of national attention for months now after police mistakenly entered her apartment, killing Taylor, an EMT, in her sleep. According to Cameron, who presented the results of a grand jury to a judge this afternoon, Officer Brett Hankison will be charged with first-degree wanton endangerment for firing into the apartments of Taylor's neighbors after Taylor was killed. That's in part because the state determined that Taylor was shot multiple times, but that only one bullet killed her. They were unable to determine who fired that bullet. The state also determined that two other officers who shot Taylor, John Mattingly and Miles Cosgrove, were justified in their actions because they were fired upon first by Taylor's boyfriend. Federal officials are also looking into the use of force by the officers in this case. The city had previously agreed to a settlement in a silver suit that Taylor's family had filed, awarding them $12 million and announcing a host of reforms. But Taylor's family had still hoped to see the three officers charged in connection with her death. Yesterday, ahead of this announcement, Louisville Mayor Greg Fisher ordered a state of emergency, quote, due to the potential for civil unrest. Oh, I mean, you know, it it wasn't just uh, her family that was hoping for this. It was a lot of America. And the fact that no one was charged in her death. um, I mean, people, if you go to Twitter right now, people are not happy. They are upset. This does not feel like justice for people. Um, Mm -hmm. This seemingly doesn't feel like it's about Brianna in any way. Yeah, no, it's up. If you didn't know the fact that this woman had died, you would just look at this case and think, oh, someone thought they heard gunshots and tried to fire back. And uh, wow, that's that's messed up of him. And he could have gotten people killed. Someone did die. Someone did die here. So this is all not great. And I mean, it truly is wild that there's yesterday there was already um, an announcement for a state of emergency, you know, in case of civil unrest. And I'm like, yeah, after this, I there is going to be civil unrest. Yeah, people are going to be protesting this, I'm pretty sure. So, geez. Uh, Oh, and jumping back up to the first story I talked about, the Pentagon bid with their spending. I just the, the. The justification that the Pentagon gave for this is fascinating to me because their argument is, well, see, the thinking is these are niche companies who without these government contracts would go under. So really, we're helping out the economy and helping prevent things from getting much worse by making sure that we can buy these jet engine parts and body armor, et cetera. I I, know. I mean, of course they had this excuse. Of course they're trying to excuse this in their minds. My God. Yeah, I mean, it, and it all fits in with, the, honestly, the, the second thing I talked, the Ukraine thing, because the, the Trump administration sees congressional like spending requirements as guidelines at best. <laughs> Congress says, this money is for this. The Trump administration says, well, it's our money now, so we're going to go buy junk food and video games. F this. 
Oh, gotta love their spending habits. <laughs> okay, Casey, what is going on with pop culture today? Well, TikTok announced today that it's cracking down on ads that promote a negative body image in people, um, which awesome, great, here for it, love it. Uh, that will include an outright ban on ads that promote weight loss supplements, which are trash. <laughs> the ban also includes fasting apps, which are supposed to help people partake in intermittent fasting. That's where you skip eating meals to charge your metabolism or something like that. But that's just still an app saying don't eat food. In the blog post announcing the changes, TikTok said they're also going to be setting up new rules on ads for weight loss products. Those products will only be advertised at adults over 18 now, and they say they're adding stronger restrictions aiming to, quote, limit irresponsible claims made by products that promote weight loss management or control. TikTok will also partner with the National Eating Disorder Association to redirect searches and hashtags that promote negative body image and eating disorders, instead sending users towards helpful educational resources. Honestly, good. Great. Love this from TikTok. More of this from social media platforms, please. Yes, it's really great. This reminds me of uh, Instagram when they were starting to closely monitor apps where you're like changing your features and, you know, like kind of photoshopping stuff like that. I think that's just like really good because this is these are really young audiences, you know? And as someone who's on TikTok all the time, let me tell you, those ads slip in. They really do look like regular videos. They do a good job of them looking like regular videos. And sometimes I catch myself being like, oh, I wonder what this is about. And then I see that it's an ad. So it's like, I could definitely see how that is influencing people in a negative way. Gross. And honestly, the, the fewer like tummy tea, whatever ads that are available, the better. <laughs> Definitely. All right, moving on. BTS fans have been donating to NPR stations around the country in the aftermath of their recent Tiny Desk concert. Earlier this week, the K-pop band joined the long-running series scoring more first-day views than any other artist. The Tiny Desk series has been remote for months now because of the pandemic, so rather than piling into NPR's headquarters, BTS performed from a record store in Seoul. Wearing bright retro blazers and bedazzled microphones, they sang a special version of their song Dynamite, their first song fully in English, which is still currently sitting at number two on the Billboard charts. Since the performance went live, Thousands of the band's enthusiastic fans have been giving donations to their local NPR stations in a show of gratitude, posting screenshots of their receipts on Twitter. Many of the donations are from people who've never donated before, according to NPR spokesperson Isabel Lara. And NPR Music says they've gained over 100,000 new subscribers to their YouTube channel since Monday. We don't have exact numbers on how much they've raised, but I'm certain it's got to be better than most pledge drives. I mean, yes, I they what they need to really do is next pledge drive, make tote bags with BTS's faces they do, on them. They do. Can you imagine how much money they'd rake in if BTS agreed to that? Oh, truly so much. I just like really think it would be great for them. Um, I also, you know, like obviously really grateful that they were able to figure out a way to do this without going in studio because of the pandemic. But oh man, I hope they do get a chance to do the Tiny Desk concert in person because I, I actually, it would be hilarious and so fun to watch like a group that big get crammed into the Tiny Desk uh, set. It's so you know? good. It's so good. <laughs> I miss it so much. That's one of the things that I am looking forward to coming back once, you know, we can be standing next to each other again is the Tiny Desk <laughs> series coming back. 
Okay, when we return, we've got Anne Helen Peterson, author of Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Stay right there. Fit. We're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self-doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from SheFit. Save $10 today at SheFit.com slash 2022. Have you ever felt depressed about work, only to have your dad be like, why are you so down? So you told him you hate your job, and he said, well, you better talk yourself out of it. And then you thought, hmm, I love to talk. I could host a podcast. And then you went to Spreaker from iHeart and started a podcast and got good at it, then monetized it, then quit your boring job, then told your dad, thanks for the advice. And he was like, well, that's not what I meant, and I don't understand what a podcast is, but you seem happy, so that's great, kiddo. You ever do that? Well, you could. At Spreaker.com. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Ask your dad. You actually don't. Look through your children's eyes to see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure and pebbles. They see a windy path that could lead to adventure. And they see you, their fearless guide through this fascinating world. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back. If you're listening to this right now, you're probably tired. And you know what? Same. Now, if you're a millennial listening to this, you're probably more than tired. You're exhausted and feel like you're nearing a total collapse. In a word, burnout. We're joined today by Anne Helen Peterson. She's the author of the new book, Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Thank you so much for joining us, Anne Helen. Oh, it's my total pleasure. So first question, uh, scale of one to 10, how goddamn tired are you right now? (laughs) Well, you know, I've been doing a lot of interviews around the book, so like more burnt out than usual. And also, you know, we had all of the smoke from the, the wildfires in the last couple of weeks here in the West. And so like, my usual release valve is going outside to walk my dogs or like spend some time in the garden. And it was just like cooped up inside with like the smell of like our house, you know, like we don't have air conditioning. It's just like, uh, so still recovering from that climate burnout. We'll put you you down as an eight. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for the gauge. Okay. So in your view, what counts as burnout and what makes it so insidious for millennials? So burnout, I think, you know, there's a clinical definition that it like has to do with not being able to function at work. I think it has to do a lot more with just an overall feeling in your life because the exhaustion of work spreads for Americans in particular into all corners of your life. And it's the feeling not just of tiredness, but like you hit the wall, then you had to scale the wall, then you had to keep going like and run this marathon every day for the rest of your life because you're never going to retire because you have to work until you die. Oh, you hit me real hard right there. <laughs> oh, but really, this uh, this book started out as a long reported essay that you wrote last year when you were still with BuzzFeed News. Uh, what made you want to look into this trend of millennial burnout in the first place? Oh, I was so burnt out, right? I just like, I could not, 
identify it as that. Like when my editors said like, Annie, I think you're a little burned out. This is after covering the 2018 midterms. And I was called to cover a mass shooting in Texas. And then I like went and lived in this tiny little town in uh, Southern Utah that used to be home to like a polygamous sect. It was like incredibly isolating and weird Uh, doing all of that reporting. And I was like, oh, why am I crying every time that I get on the phone with my editors, which is like not a normal thing for me. And there, my, one of my editors is like, I think you're a little burnt out. And I'm like, how dare you? How dare you suggest I'm burnt out, right? This is the millennial way. It's not that you are burnt out. It's that we define on our, define ourselves on our capacity to keep working all the time. And so I was like, well, I guess I'll write about like kind of how I feel right now, which is that I couldn't get my errands done. Like I had these dumb things on my to-do list that like just kept recycling. And as I started like researching that phenomenon, I was like, oh, (laughs) I am totally burnt out. And so I tried to expand the definition, that clinical definition of burnout to, I think, more adequately describe my life and my, my history, like how I learned to work all the time. Where did I learn these ideas? Right. Cause they came from somewhere. And then that turned into a, a really long essay that went on the internet. So what would you say is the wildest statistic that you came across while you were doing the research for this book? I mean, there's so many, but the one that always sticks with me is that parents, moms in particular, you know, when mom started going into the workforce en masse, in a way that they hadn't before in like the seventies and eighties, you would think that the number of hours that they spend in direct supervision, parenting their kids, you'd think it'd go down, right? Cause they're in the workplace for, for more hours. Instead, that number has stayed the same, if not increased. So moms are still doing all of these hours of direct supervision and parenting and they're going to work. Right. Ooh. Yeah. Well, for those of us millennials who are out there trying to start families, we're having kids later. We're not really owning property for the most part. We're in the middle of a second recession and a pandemic and climate change. Is is there anything that's not adding to our burnout rates at this point? <laughs> oh, good question. Yeah, I mean, the, the overarching thing about millennials, like this, the, the big stat, right, is that we are the first generation since the greatest generation to take a step backwards, right? In terms of wealth accumulation, savings, health expectancy, like all of those sorts of things. And I think the one thing that's giving me hope is that we're really mad. And I hope that we can funnel that anger into actually saying like, it doesn't have to be this way and get Gen Z like on board too, right? And being like, it doesn't have to be this way. How can we actually affect change, not just incremental change, but make some big changes in the way that our society works. So speaking of Gen Z, uh, your book focuses on millennials, but how much of this effect, this feeling, would you say transfers over to Generation Z? You know, I've been reluctant to give any labels to Gen Z because as an elder millennial, I was born in 1981. I have such a vivid memory of like all the things that were said about millennials when we were in our early twenties, right? Like when the first millennials were coming into the the workplace and so many like Gen Z is still like becoming itself. But at the same time, I've seen some Gen Zers who are like, why do millennials complain all the time? Like, why don't they just like, (laughs) you know, kind of that buck up mentality. And then I've seen some Gen Z who are like, this is screwed up. Like we can have a different society. Uh, You know, there is a, a really, I think, progressive and also uh, hopeful 
part of Gen Z that says like, we can do something about climate change. We just have to freaking do it. Right. Instead of like resigning ourselves to our own exhaustion. A lot of the generation war between millennials and baby boomers has become almost a meme. Does thinking of it that way where, oh, the older generation will always hate the younger generation make sense to you? You know, I I sometimes hope that boomers can pause and think about like why so many millennials feel the way that they do, which is that boomers basically like took the the ladder and brought it up after themselves, right? Like they took a lot of the the safety nets, the social safety nets that created the sort of stability that made it easier to do things like buy homes and start families and that sort of thing and voted in ways that eliminated those safety nets. So it makes sense that there is some resentment there. But then I also think a lot of those behaviors, and I try to cover this in the book, were because boomers were were kind of burnt out themselves, right? So they were trying to stabilize their lives and kind of voting in policies and politicians that they thought would stabilize. They were wrong, <laughs> but they, they thought that they were trying to, to stabilize. Uh, so... Hopefully we can take a look a little bit at our parents, whether they're older Gen Z or, or boomers, and, and try to understand some of the ways that they were burnt out too, while also recognizing that like we're dealing with, I think, a pretty different set of challenges as a generation. Going back to your BuzzFeed News essay, it was published in February 2019. Things have gotten so much more stressful <laughs> since then. How does your... How, how does your book reflect that? Well, I, the book was like in copy editing when things started to really become very clearly bad, right? This is like late February and my editor is like, well, we have time for you to, you know, write like, I don't know, 2000 words at the beginning. Do you want to do that? And I was like, yes, of course. Like, I don't want this book to come out into this COVID world with no acknowledgement of the new reality of that we're living in. And then, you know, back then, if you guys can remember, it's so weird to think back to February, there were still people who are like, by July 4th, we'll be back in the office, which seems like, <laughs> I mean, I guess if we were Canada, that could maybe happen, right? And if people were acting differently, but I, I think every prediction or everything that I try to describe in the book about burnout and about precarity, right? About that feeling of like, I don't know what's going to happen financially, psychologically, with my family, with care, all those sorts of things. It's just gotten worse. It's just been amped up in all of these different ways. So if it was true before, it's even more true now. Okay. So, so last thing then off of that pleasant note, do you have any advice to offer up on how to not let ourselves just succumb to the delightful, cozy, warm embrace of the darkness that awaits us after we're all burned out? (laughs) You know, I think that the thing I try to like recommend to people is cultivating some sort of semblance of self outside of work, which I know like feels so impossible a lot of times and like a hobby, you know, we feel like we have to monetize it. We're always optimizing ourselves in some way. Like if we're exercising, it's to like optimize our bodies, blah, blah, blah. My big recommendation is finding a hobby that you're actually crap at, right? That you do not care. You will never try to be good at it. You will never try to like make it into a line on your resume no one cares. It is exclusively for you. And it is exclusively something that like has no purpose other than that it's yours. So that's my big piece of advice. I know that that's hard to start, but you can start thinking about it. Well, and Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. So nice to see you guys. 
That's it for today. Join us tomorrow for an interview with Tara Palmieri. She's the host of the podcast Broken, Seeking Justice, which just started its second season. And remember, if you're feeling burned out today, see if you can hunt a dog. I hear that helps. If your friends have a dog, borrow it. If you have one yourself, lucky. Be sure to subscribe to News O'Clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to set your alarm so you never miss an episode of News O'Clock. Hello. Hello. Hi. Oh my God, I want to come through the screen and hug you. Hey everybody, Jessica Zor here, also known as Vanessa Abrams on Gossip Girl. I am so excited to share my new podcast with you guys. It's called XOXO, and it's a walk down memory lane all about Gossip Girl. I'll chat with some of the cast, crew, fans of the show, and I'm just so pumped for you guys to go on this journey with me. Hi, I'm Ed Westwick. I played Chuck Bass. Is this Michelle Trachtenberg? I'll never tell. Hey, I'm Taylor Momsen, and I played Jenny Humphrey. Hi, I'm Sebastian Stan, and I played Carter Payson. That was one of the reasons I liked the character Jenny so much, is that she was very relatable. The whole thing was such a joy for me to do, and I was just so thankful that people responded the way they did to what we were doing. This really was just, like, wonderful. I, like, have, like, warm feelings inside. Yeah, me too. I'm giving you air hugs. Listen to XOXO on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Mama, what does the chicken say? Uh, dog. Cat. Giraffe. Giraffe, really? Giraffe. Uh, giraffe. You're not going to get it all right. Just make sure you nail the big stuff, like making sure your kids are buckled correctly in the right seat for their age and size. Get it right. Visit NHTSA.gov. Slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council.